Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today are Nicole Gelinas and Raphael Mangual, both of whom are senior fellows at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editors of City Journal. Ralph is also the head of research for MI's Policing and Public Safety Initiative. Last week, the two of them wrote an article for City Journal about the crisis at the Rikers Island jail complex. Today, we'll talk about that crisis and how it can be fixed or made worse. Nicole and Ralph, thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you, Teddy. Thanks so much for having us. So everyone agrees, I think, at this point that Rikers Island is in crisis. There's really no other word for it when 12 people have died so far this year while being held in the jail. Conditions there have deteriorated to the extent that medical care, food, and water are scarce, and violence is up both among inmates and between inmates and guards. A federal monitor said on Friday that the jails are in a state of emergency. Mayor Bill de Blasio is set to visit the jail this week, and a group of congressional Democrats have asked President Biden to intervene. Before we turn to the broad story of how we got here, let's focus on the immediate circumstances. Just how bad are things at Rikers right now? Could we see meaningful improvement in the next days and weeks? And how long have conditions been this dreadful? Uh, that's a question for either of you. Um, well, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. I mean, things are, are really, really bad right now. Um, and I don't know that there is a policy lever we could pull or combination of levers that we could pull uh, to turn things around in the short term. This is not a problem um, that has happened overnight, but it's also not a problem that has developed all that gradually either. Um, you know, this is a problem that really started uh, under Mayor de Blasio, and he's essentially done everything in his power to make things worse, um, albeit with the goal of making things better. I think one place to start is by reversing some of those, uh, I think, misguided policy decisions. But even doing that at this point um, does not seem to me to be a, a kind of clear fix. I think, you know, one of the things uh, that, that we're starting to see is that the infrastructure on the island, the, the number of guards in place, the willingness of, you know, uh, of, of staff uh, to come to work is, is something that, that I think um, is going to be a really difficult problem to overcome and one that, you know, I think you need to solve before anything else really starts to get better. Yeah, I would I would echo those remarks and also note that the federal monitor who oversees Rikers Island, you know, as Ralph said, it's it's run by the city, but they've been under a court ordered oversight for six years now. The monitor petitions a federal judge last Friday and it wants an emergency hearing to bring in some outside management. And the monitor in his petition last week said that uh, people in the jail, both uh, inmates and staff, face imminent risk of harm and squarely blamed the de Blasio administration, the, you know, I quote, ubiquitous mismanagement and prevalent security failures within the jail. So as Ralph said, uh, the conditions are pretty bad. So conditions are bad, but how did they get this bad? Let's zoom out a bit. Um, you know, if everybody agrees a crisis exists, there's obviously much disagreement about how it came about and how to solve it. Uh, a group of progressive lawmakers argue that the only available solution is to release the nearly 6,000 inmates currently housed in Rikers. 
Meanwhile, the Department of Corrections is trying to get prison guards to work more shifts. The Federal Monitor, uh, I think, I believe, recommended hiring outside security, uh, which is unclear if, if that can actually happen. And behind these disagreements are broader disagreements over the direction of criminal justice policy. For years, the New York Times editorial board and others have advocated the closure of Rikers as a symbolic measure against uh, quote-unquote mass incarceration. The de Blasio administration has drawn up a plan to do just that. In a recent editorial, the Times labeled proposals to improve conditions at Rikers, quote, stop gaps that fail to address the underlying problem, which in their view is that New York, like the rest of the country, locks up far too many people for no good reason. The two of you disagree. Uh, in the article for City Journal that you wrote last week, you identify a series of decarceral policy changes as the true culprits of the current crisis. Bail and parole reforms, restrictions on corrections officers have left behind a harder to manage population of inmates and led to critical staffing shortages in the, in the jail. Uh, corrections officers, by the way, have strong union protections, as you note, and can't be replaced by private contractors. So this is a question for Ralph. Can you walk us through the policies that you identify in your article as contributing to the crisis? What were these policies and what have they done? Yeah, so, I mean, a number of things really started to change under the de Blasio administration. I'm going to start with um, punitive segregation, which is probably better known to listeners as solitary confinement. Um, this was a practice that um, was was heavily scrutinized in the media when de Blasio took office. You had uh, the case of Khalif Browder, who was a young man uh, who was incarcerated on Rikers Island after um, being hit with a robbery charge, uh, was in solitary confinement for a significant period of time during that period of incarceration. When he was released um, from jail, he subsequently committed suicide, and it was largely believed um, that that suicide was, you know, a, 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 one of the drivers of that suicide was, you know, the, the psychological damage of a prolonged period of time spent in solitary confinement. And so Mayor de Blasio kind of committed to punitive segregation reform very, very early on in his tenure. And so in December of 2014, you started to see this practice get rolled back. Um, by 2016, the practice was administratively outlawed. Um, for all inmates under the age of 18, so 16 and 17 year olds, which, which back then were still housed uh, in city jails in a lot of cases. Um, that policy was later extended to all inmates 21 and under. Um, and of course, the Blasio administration has since moved to eradicate it altogether. Now, one of the problems with this is that we know that, you know, there are, there is such thing as, as a problem inmate, and there are inmates who will commit serious violence within jail walls uh, if they are not further incapacitated and separated from the general population. Um, we also know that punitive segregation is something that inmates don't necessarily look forward to. And so it, it's a, it was for a long time a tool in the belt of corrections officers you know, who could sort of threaten that sanction uh, in order to control inmate behavior. Once that possibility was taken off the table, we saw violence within New York City jail start to skyrocket. I mean, you went from, uh, you know, 2000, uh, I'm sorry, going back from 2018 to 1998, it's a 20 year period, you had a close to um, 50% 
um, decline in the in the population uh, in New York City jails and a near doubling in the number of violent uh, uh, assaults and fight infractions. Um, that's not something uh, that that you would have expected to see as as the numbers went down. I think one of the reasons uh, that we saw that is just this inability of of guards to further incapacitate problem inmates through punitive segregation. Um, what one of the other things that happened was there was a class action lawsuit called Nunez, um, which is what resulted in the federal monitor that's currently overseeing the jails, and that whole monitorship came with a number of administrative policy changes. Among them were severe restrictions on uh, the force, the physical force that guards could use uh, to control inmates, high impact blows to the head, to the groin, uh, neck restraints, etc. Now, given that these guards are not armed, are often outnumbered, um, restricting their ability to use physical force when uh, engaged with uh, an inmate that's resisting and at the same time, not being able to impose punitive segregation on significant chunks of that uh, inmate population, I think really contributed to the kind of uh, really risky working conditions that have made so many of these guards, I think, unwilling um, or, or frightened to come to work. Now, again, you know, I think we can have a whole conversation about you know uh, setting up a system in which the city has. Um, more power over uh, its workforce. Um, and I think there is something to be said for some of the public uh, employee union protections um, that uh, I think we've seen get out of hand in, in many contexts. But it's, it's also not at all surprising to me that you would see guards less willing to come to work when you've so radically changed the risk profile of their day-to-day -day life. Um, in addition to fight assault infractions between and among inmates, we saw huge um, increases in the rates of assaults on staff. Um, you know, there were other changes such as deciding to house gang members together, which, you know, while that may avoid uh, uh, inter-gang fights, it does uh, kind of allow um, inmates uh, to gang up on staff and, and makes it harder for, for them to be controlled. Um, and then there was also just a lack of investment in inequality corrections workforce. Um, you know, not a lot of hires in the corrections department over the last seven years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not a particularly high paying job. And I think, you know, the, the combination of a lack of investment, making, you know, the environment more risky and, and not paying a lot, um, you know, kind of ends us up in this place where you kind of get what you pay for. And I think every outcome measure that we care about is moving in the wrong direction as a result. So, um, Ralph, I, just a brief follow-up question. I mean, was the increase in violence, is it fair to describe that as a foreseeable consequence of these policy choices? In other words, like, is, is there research out there suggesting that, you know, many of the, these decisions uh, would produce a rise in violence? Yeah, I mean, well, there's not a ton of, of, of causal analyses on, um, you know, uh, solitary confinement's impact on immediate violence. You know, uh, a lot of that research is conducted with an eye toward making a case against solitary confinement and doesn't really answer the key question of what its incapacitative effects are within jail walls. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of research on the psychological harms associated with solitary confinement and, you know, other um, uh, problematic prison conditions. And I think all of that stuff should be addressed. Um, but what we can't do, and I think that's the lesson of, of what's happened in New York City jails, is take away these incapacitative sanctions wholesale without replacing them with something that can be expected to offer the same security benefit in the immediate term. Because what happens is 
um, what we've seen over the last seven years, which is a serious deterioration in the safety uh, for inmates and staff alike. And as that happens and, and continues to happen, um, those outcomes uh, are, are going to continue to move in the wrong direction. And, you know, I want people to understand that, you know, the, the people dealing with the brunt of the impact here of, of these policy choices are inmates themselves. I know, you know, for a lot of people, that's not a particularly sympathetic group, but, you know, they are in the city's charge and the city owes it to them to provide them a secure environment. And it's been failing them um, in, in every respect. And so, you know, for, for those who would, you know, jump to the argument that you know, we shouldn't impose further psychological harm on the inmates that might find themselves in solitary confinement, um, I, I think it's, it's incumbent upon them uh, to come up with an answer uh, to the question of how it is you can provide the same level of security that we saw just, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, Nicole, uh, you've written at length about the plan, the campaign uh, to close Rikers Island. Uh, the de Blasio administration um, plans to, well, uh, worked on a plan to replace it with four high-rise jails that would be located in boroughs across the city. Uh, I think the most recent estimate, although correct me if I'm wrong, is that the plan would have been operative by 2026. So practically speaking, uh, what does any of this mean for the Close Rikers campaign? Uh, are we still on track to see the Rikers Island jail complex close? Uh, or if the decarceration push really has made things worse, might we see a future administration reverse course and resolve to fix conditions there rather than shut it down? Well, in addition to everything that Ralph talked about, about why conditions are so bad at Rikers right now, I would add another reason is the push by the de Blasio administration and the city council to close Rikers and build four borough-based jails. Two years ago, next month, de Blasio stood at City Hall and announced uh, what he considered a huge victory, that the city was closing Rikers Island, closing Torture Island as he closed it, and ending the era of mass incarceration. Now, this, this plan to close Rikers Island and build four jails in every borough except for Staten Island, this was a long time coming for the decarceration advocates, the former uh City Council uh, Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito. This was one of her one of the main goals of her administration. She passed it along to Corey Johnson, uh, who took over as Speaker. This was one of his main accomplishments. But much of the four borough jails program, in fact, all of it at the moment, because it's now two years late, as you said, it was supposed to be finished in 2026. It's already been pushed off to 2028. This is all symbolic. And so in saying that they were going to close Rikers and open four borough jails two years ago, the city government essentially walked away from Rikers Island and considered considered the problem uh, solved, they made the advocates happy. Uh, this was over with. Anytime anyone ever criticized conditions at Rikers Island, the city could respond by saying, we know Rikers Island is terrible. That is why we are closing Rikers Island once and for all. But that uh, outlook toward Rikers first ignores the fact that even under the best of conditions, Rikers will be open another seven years from today. 
Uh, and in, under the worst of conditions, we will see even more delays to the four borough jails program. So you could be looking at more than a decade. So effectively, you've had the city say, we can't do anything at all about Rikers right now. We have to open the four borough jails, but never gave any solutions about what they would do in the meantime, whether it was supposed to be 2026, 2028. That is a long time to leave inmates sitting at what the city admits is a broken Rikers Island system. Now, can Rikers be fixed without building four borough jails? Yes, there's nothing about the Rikers location that is at the root of any of Rikers' problems. Yes, it's it's remotely located, just like the airports are remotely located. You can fix that problem by better, more frequent bus transportation. You could build a ferry to Rikers Island. Uh, that is a straw man argument that it's it has fallen into these conditions because of its location. We could build modern low-rise jail facilities at Rikers Island and do it on a much faster schedule than we can build four high-rise jails and four dense urban uh, neighborhoods, something that no city has ever done successfully. You know, listening to both of you, I'm struck that this uh, was something of an avoidable tragedy. Uh, but what has to happen intellectually or on the policy level for further tragedy to be avoided? I guess my final question for both of you, um, you know, if if public officials could realize one thing, whether it's a policy recommendation or a general approach to these sorts of issues, uh, you know, that would help them solve the problem, what would it be? Well, I think the one thing that I would... Um, hope that they internalize is that laudable goals alone um, are not enough, right? I think the de Blasio administration had nothing but the best intentions in mind when it set out uh, to engage in the reform agenda that it has engaged in with respect to Rikers Island and the criminal justice system more broadly. Um, but we also have to be willing to be held accountable um, as the results come in, as the, the outcome measures that we care about, um, you know, become apparent. And when we see those moving in the wrong directions, I think we have to be willing as a city um, to maybe back away from the policies that sounded nice in our head and that, that sounded noble um, when we, you know, uh, outlined them in, in a stump speech. But, um, you know, I, I think the reality is, is that when you're talking about New York City jails, you're talking about a population of very violent, um, persistent criminals. I think, you know, at least as of 2019, something like 75% of the Rikers population on any given day had been there before, right? These are not sort of first time low level offenders. These are people who are facing serious felony charges um, with lengthy criminal histories. And, you know, as the, the data seem to show are perfectly willing uh, to engage in serious violence. Um, you know, as, as a way to uh, exert uh, control within jail walls. And so, you know, I think we have to get over the idea that we know how to, at scale, um, you know, uh, correct uh, these individuals, which is to say that, you know, that we know how to rehabilitate them and integrate them back into society. Jails and prisons are going to continue uh, to play a, a necessary role in the provision of security to the rest of us. And, and I, I think lots of people have become uncomfortable with that proposition. And I think a lot of the reform agenda has sort of followed from that sense of discomfort. Yeah, I would say if there's an inkling of good news, 
it comes from all of this bad news. Would it have been much better to avoid all of the bad news? Of course. But finally, de Blasio realizes he cannot run out the clock on the Rikers crisis. He's got a little bit uh, fewer than 100 days left in office. I think his hope before was he can keep coasting on his plan to build the four borough jails and close Rikers and leave this headache to the next mayor. That is obviously not the case. He came into under such uh, pressure from the press and from other elected officials and from the federal monitor over the past few weeks that he has uh, had to go visit Rikers, which he has not done uh, during his second term at all. And he has had to announce some stopgap measures, which should make a marginal difference. I mean, one of the measures he took last week was reopening a jail complex on Rikers, the Taylor building, that he had closed uh, a year and a half ago. He had closed this uh, Taylor uh, building as part of the proof that we were making progress on the four borough jails program that we're already closing down Rikers jails. was obviously not a good idea. It just, it resulted in more overcrowding and more chaos during the pandemic. So he's at least undoing a symbolic move that actually did more harm than good, uh, uh, imposing more disciplinary uh, uh, procedures for guards who are not showing up to work to get some of these one third of guards every day who aren't coming in to start to show up. So we should in also transferring 200 inmates to upstate prisons, uh, people who are serving short sentences. So all of those things should at least mildly alleviate the short-term condition. I think the bigger step that uh, the next mayor most likely will have to take in his first days in, in office is acknowledging that we cannot rely on the four borough jails close Riker slogan as the way to get our way out of this mess. You know, for years, de Blasio has been saying, we have to change the, Riker, the, the culture at Rikers. The new four borough jails will change the culture. There's, there's never been any credible evidence that just moving to different jail locations will change the culture. So I think it's time to take a hard look at what kind of changes in the culture can we make now to make the working conditions for the staff better, to make the conditions for the inmates better. There are more modest incremental steps that we can take rather than wait another seven years for four new jails to open up. Wise words. So on that note, uh, listeners, do not forget to check out Nicole and Ralph's work on the City Journal website. We will link to their author pages in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Nicole and Ralph, thank you very much for joining me and uh, for shining some light on this story. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.